My name is Javon McCormick. I am the president and CEO of Scribe Media. Uh, more importantly, I'm also a father and a husband. And on today, we are going to cover, wow, lessons from my pimp father. We're going to talk about my fuck it moments. And we're really going to dive into what did I learn from being sexually molested by that prostitute? What did I learn when I was in juvenile prison? Not juvenile detention, juvenile prison. What did I learn when I was in the hole, in that pitch black hole by myself as a 13 year old kid? So stay tuned. Welcome back to this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. My guest today is Javon McCormick. He is the president and CEO of a publishing company called Scribe Media. Scribe Media has worked with more than 1,800 authors, including members of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, Nassim Taleb, and the Navy SEAL Dave Goggins. This is a fascinating conversation because our guest today um, didn't grow up in ideal <laughs> ideal situation i was talking about in in the first part that um he made millions on the stock market but never went to college he owned a software company but never wrote never learned how to write code and is now the ceo of a publishing company and can barely spell so whatever you think your things are in the way you may want to consider that maybe there are ways around it so you know where we started today, one of the things we started off with, and you kind of threw it in there, but I want to come back to it, which is um, your name, Javon, um, <laughs> but you used to be JT. Tell us a yeah. little bit about that first, because I want to give people some context around this. Oh, man. So back in my early 20s, when I was starting my, my career in, in, in trying to put myself on the map, if you will, uh, and I was trying to land appointments, get on people's calendars, I could not get on someone's calendar. And one day, a nice gentleman decided to get on the phone with me. And he says to me, hey, how did you get a black name, black first name and a Irish last name? So my name is Javon McCormick. Well, here's what this was the damnedest thing. I, at that point, I'm in my 20s. I didn't even know my last name was Irish. So I was focused on, wow, I learned something today. Uh, but then when I hung up the call, I, I realized, oh, that's why I can't get on people's calendars. They're seeing Javon and they're mm -hmm. just, they're like, nope, not happening. So my full name is Javon Thomas McCormick. I made the decision. I said, that's it. I'm going to go by JT. Right. So I started going by JT McCormick and, and dove the, the, uh, the damnedest thing the very next week just lit it up with appointments, getting on people's calendars. It, it was crazy. And so from there, from the age, early 20s to last May, June, when the George Floyd uh, murder happened and the protest took so place. So from your early 20s? To, to, to the age of 48. So, so right, so you know, almost 30 years. Yeah. I, I, went built, by I JT. built my career, everything by, by JT. If you, if you dated me, I was JT career, you hired me. I was JT. Everything was JT. And then last May, June, like I said, during the George Floyd murder, the protest, everything that went down, I, I started watching what was some of the most shallow 
bullshit status signaling stuff I'd ever seen. Blackout Tuesday on social media. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what, what does that do for anybody? So you yeah. blacked out your Twitter. Woohoo! And, and then what really rubbed me the wrong way was we were arguing over a syrup bottle, a freaking syrup bottle. And, and I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. So it hit me. I read this article and it said that there were only three black fortune 500 CEOs. And so I wanted to see who they were. And I found out it was Marvin. So, let me just pause everybody. Cause I want you to listen to this uh, as Javon tells you the names of these people, the three <laughs> black fortune 500 CEOs. Now remember what he just talked to you about how he couldn't get on onto calendars and how he managed to get on that. Now I'll let him tell you the names of the top three black CEOs. Top three, Marvin Ellison, Roger Ferguson, Kenneth Frazier. And I thought, oh, wow, those are three ethnic free <laughs> names that you, the, the, you those, would not those, know. Those, those come in whitey, whitey, yeah. and whitey. <laughs> well, and, and here's what's crazy. Uh, I've had the incredible opportunity to to meet, speak with, sit with uh, the the wealthiest black man in America, Robert Smith. And so when you you look at these names, I'm like, well, wait a minute, you're kind of ahead of the game on this. So when I made the decision, I said, okay, this this is kind of some bullshit. I said, I'm going to reclaim my name and I'm going to start going by Javon. I've made it to the CEO chair. I've made some success. I've been fortunate. I've made a ton of money. Uh, and I said, you know what? I, I want every kid that comes from where I come from, every Martavius, Ravante, Laquanda, Lucretia, Jamarcus, I want them all to see, wow, a Javon made it to the CEO chair. And, and, and my goal was maybe one day when you go into the workplace, you can work next to a Javon, not just a JT. And I, I made the decision to, to reclaim my name. And, and so now I go by Javon McCormick again. I think that that's so awesome. Why, why do you think it took you so long? I mean, I get what happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, the George Floyd thing and absolutely I get what happened, but why do you, why do you think you didn't have that courage before? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, here's the question that, I, that I've been asked. Uh, it, people have said, would you do it again? You're damn right. I do it again. It, it, unfortunately, it was a necessary strategy that mm -hmm. I, I used. Why did it take me so long? Interesting enough, uh, I, I became the CEO of, of Scribe five years ago and probably a year into it, everyone said, hey, you should start going by Javon again. You should go by Javon again. I put it off, put it off and did, didn't think twice of it. Why, why did it take so long? Uh, I, I had built the career as, as JT I had, I, I wasn't sure about, okay, this Javon thing. I didn't become successful as, as Javon. I became successful as JT. What's that going to look like? Mm -hmm. so I, I feel like I just buried it in the, the back of my mind, put it off to the side and, okay, hey, you know, leave, leave well enough alone. You made it here as, as JT. But, uh, and I, I will say this, it, it, it's, it's sad 
there's a story behind what I'm going to say. And, and if you would allow me to tell it, I'd greatly appreciate it. When, when I was a kid, I was eight years old. And my mother and I were standing in line waiting for our allotment of food stamps. This is back in the 70s when they handed you this, this the paper money and you got mm -hmm. your free handout. And, yep. and man, you had to stand in line for three hours for this, this handout. Yep. An old white lady looked down at me, looked at my mother, and she spit in my mother's face. And she called her a nigger lover. And I remember oh my God. looking at my mother... And just the humiliation in her face, the tears coming down her eyes. And she had to stand there, man. She had to stand there, wipe that sweat, that, that, those tears from her eyes, the sweat because it was hot outside, um, and be humiliated. And she couldn't leave that line because she had to feed her mixed-race child. No one came to my mother's assistance. No one said anything. And we stood there. And it was in that moment that I realized, eight years, I said, okay, everyone's not going to like you. It, it, you're half white, half black, and it's just going to be this way the rest of your life. And that was one of the greatest lessons that I ever learned because I did not spend my whole life trying to make people like me. But here, now I'm going to go back to my name. Here's what was important in that lesson. I realized I don't give a damn what you think about me, but I also realized that sometimes it matters what you think about me. Mm -hmm. And that whole name thing was, I knew it mattered that JT versus Javon. And that's why I stuck with, with JT for so long, because I didn't give a damn if you liked me, but I knew it mattered by what name I was going by. You know, it, it's interesting because when we started out the show, when we talked about extroverts and introverts, and I talked about that learning of adaptability learning um, the persona, how to develop a persona. Um, so, you know, I, I, I did martial arts, I boxed, I was a bodybuilder for many, many years. Um, I, I have a face that looks like it's been punched. You know, I look like a fighter, but I'm not a fighter. I did all those things, but I'm not a fighter. I'm actually a big softy. Everybody who knows me knows that about me. I can be aggressive if I need to be, but that's a persona that I built to survive in my environment, just as you built JT. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that I found interesting about this, Javon, and I'm, I'm going to ask you very directly, is did you, were you hiding, Javon? Meaning what I mean uh -oh. by that is, were you hiding your, that part, was there a shame there? Man, um, I'll tell you how much I was hiding. I did not want anyone to know who I was, where, where I came from, that my right. dad was a pimp, had 23 kids. I, I mean, I was so, uh, my, my wife said it best years ago. She said, you were a chameleon. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you were whatever you needed to be. <laughs> and, and, and I was, if you thought yeah. I would, when I was living in San Antonio for a while and San Antonio is like 70% uh, Hispanic. If you thought I was Hispanic, hey, I was Hispanic. If you thought I had a degree, hey, I got a degree. Um, I was whatever I needed to be to get to wherever I wanted to go. And so, no, I, I didn't want you to know that to this day, I don't know where my last name comes from. My mother got that last name in the orphanage. She has no clue where, sure. why, how she got that name. So I still walk around with the last name McCormick 
no clue where it comes from. Um, I didn't want you to know that, you know, who, who's going to want to hire the guy whose dad was a pimp with 23 kids, who's going to want to hire the guy who was sexually molested in and out of juvenile three different times and only has a GED and, and can't spell. Who's going to want to hire that guy. Who's going to want to date that guy. Mm -hmm. So uh, what that ended up leading into was, yes, I had success within, in my career, but man, I had fractured relationships, couldn't hold a relationship. I was a monster to women, uh, just a, a beast and, and could not hold a relationship to save my life. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that because I think that I know, I don't think I know, um, in the work that I do, I will often say that you know, as I said, I work with very, very extraordinarily successful people, people way more successful than me. And what I know is this, that their success, their drive for success is often nothing more than a cover up for their pain, a cover up for their shame. Not that's not even their own that was given to them. Like, you know, so your shame was given to you, it wasn't yours was given to you by that woman who spit on your mom and people like that, right? Um, and that, we bury that and we go, okay, well, if I can get to here, then I can be okay. If I can get to there, well, but that didn't work. So if I get to there, then I'll be okay. Talk to us about that for you. <laughs> because you have had enormous success. You have done very well. But, you know, there's that aspiring to to get to a place in hopes that something will go away that inevitably doesn't. Yeah. I mean, man, I, I it, it, it's interesting. So, so my book is titled, I got there. And the reason why, how it got titled that way was uh, Tucker Max, my co-founder uh, of Scribe. We were sitting down one day while we were doing my book and he, he said, um, he goes, man, where, where are you going? He goes, what are you still chasing running to? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you've got a beautiful wife. You've got children. You live in a gated community. He goes, you're, you're, you're smart as hell. Even that right there really took me to the left. No one, no one. He was the first person ever to tell me I was smart in my 40s. No one had ever told me I was smart. And so that threw a curve at, at me. He said, you got there. He said, you're there. And he goes, you know what? That's the title of your book. I got there. And that, that's where the, the title came from because my whole life, I have just been uh, running to not go back to my circumstances, running to not go back to that hood in Dayton, Ohio, running to not ever get sexually molested again, uh, running that you didn't know my past, who I was trying to stay just completely separated from it. So, you know, it, yeah, it, it's, I'll, I'll share this with you. This was a hard one. I remember two years ago, it was Christmas time. My wife and I are sitting on the couch and we're watching a, a Christmas show or something. And, and she, she looked at me and she said, Hey, how come you ne you've never allowed me to initiate sex? And usually I've got an answer for everything. <laughs> and so I, I, I sat there and I was like, I don't know. 
I said, let me, let me think about that one. About two weeks went by and I, I came up to her. I said, hey, hey, I, I know, I, I figured it out. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, you asked me why I never allowed you to initiate sex. And she said, yeah, I said, I figured it out. I go, my whole life, I've never allowed any woman to initiate sex with me. And I realized it was because when I was six, seven, eight years old, that prostitute used to initiate sex and she used to force me to perform oral sex on her. And I had, until my wife had asked me that, I had never put the two together. I had never figured that out. I had never thought about it, considered it. Uh, but it was such a freeing moment that I, I at least knew, oh, wow, that did hold a, a, a negative impact on me. I, I found the positive that came from it for, for uh, as well. I used to just focus on the positive that came for, from it for me. When, when she used to, man, I know I'm going off track here. When she used to perform or force me to perform oral sex on her, um, if I didn't do it right, she used to slap me in the face and punch me in the head and tell me to do it right. And man, I'm six, seven, eight years old. I'm like, what the hell does do it right? You know, there's grown ass adults that don't know what do it right means. And so um, but I remember as a kid thinking to myself, man, well, you, you, you're taking me back here. Um, I remember saying to myself, I am never going to be in a position where I don't know what to do. And it came from that moment. And from then on, I was always trying to learn my surroundings. No, be ahead, be one step ahead, three steps, know what's coming, see around the corner, anticipate, pay attention to the chaos, put it in order, connect the dots. And it came from being molested by that, that prostitute. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty powerful, man. And I really appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that. Um, because it, it, it is fascinating. Uh, I've done a lot of work with men and I did a lot of men's trainings back in the early 90s. And I talked about sexual power <clears throat> and what sexual power is. And sometimes sexual power is surrender and not aggression uh, and, and understanding that if, if you can't surrender in a sexual situation, that means you were taken advantage of at some point. So because it feels it's too vulnerable, not vulnerable in the natural sense, but too vulnerable that you're going to get hurt. Um, and so, you know, a lot of men who were very sexually aggressive were men who were molested and were taken advantage of or were, you know, brutalized in some way around their sexuality. So, you know, I really think that what you just shared there is vastly important for for us all of us to to really hear um when you i'm just trying to fill in that background piece that when you when this was happening were you living with your dad or were you living with your mom and your dad visited how did that work wow. um so so <laughs> i i used to refer to my dad as like a a, a solar eclipse like it only came like every now and then and so but when it came it was this grand event uh i i lived with my mom and so my mom raised me single mom welfare we you know we we struggled mightily uh, and my dad would come around every now and then. If I saw my dad three times a month, it was a great month. Uh, mm. most, in most cases, he would, you know, he'd say he was going to come pick me up. 
and I'd stand in that window, man, five, six, seven hours, just loyal. Okay, he's going to come, he's going to come. You didn't want to miss him. So you stood there mm -hmm. and he'd never show. And right. so uh, on those rare occasions that he did pick me up, it's when I would be at his house and that prostitute would would sexually molest me when when no one was around. Here, here's something else I figured out as I got older as well. I'm not so sure the reason she was sexually molesting me is because she enjoyed it. I personally believe, or I've, I've told myself this, I feel like she was getting back at my dad. I feel like that she, because she was one of my dad's prostitutes, this was kind of her way of getting back at, at him. Yep. And so that that's when it would happen. And here's what was interesting. Man, it, it, as a little boy, you just, you crave a, a, a male figure in your life, you know, your, your dad. And so to me, it is, as bad as he was, he was still right next to God in my eyes. So I never told anyone I was getting sexually molested because one, I knew my mom would never let me go back. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then, so I'm like, uh, uh not saying anything. I'll just take it, do what I got to do. And, but if I get to see my dad, great, I, I'm, I'm in. So that, I mean, right there, you just opened up a door because for so many people who went through sexual molestation in any form, that is actually how it continued on, right? So people will say, you know, I feel so bad because I, I didn't stop it or I didn't, you know, I didn't do this or I didn't do that. And it's like, hold on a second. Have you considered why? They're like, well, no. Well, number one, you were a child. You didn't have that level of power. And number two, if it was somebody that you loved or respected who did that to you and you were a child, when you're a kid, mom and dad are the god and goddess. They're the all-powerful beings. They know why the sun shines. They know why, why the sky is blue, the grass is green, and they'll wake you up when you're tired, and they'll make you go to sleep when you're awake. They'll feed you when you don't want to eat, and they won't feed you when you're hungry. So they have all the power in the world. And if they say something is right, it's right. If they say something is wrong, it's wrong. There's no moral value for you. And so in this desperation to appeal to the god and goddess we let shit happen yeah because we because and it's biological and neurological because we need to be connected to people that's part of us we're tribal but we need to be connected to those who can quote protect us who are our most powerful beings and so that desire you had to be um to have a connection with your dad as rare as it was allows for higher and higher levels of abuse because i still get the payoff is i get to spend time with dad kind of yeah so when you is your dad still alive no my my dad uh passed away three years ago and and i gotta throw this in there uh, for all the money that man made as a pimp and drug dealer he died flat broken in one of, this probably ranks in my top 10 things that I'm, I'm proud of. I hadn't seen my dad in 35 years when he passed away. Hadn't seen him, hadn't talked to him anything and word made it to me that he passed away. And I struggled. I said, okay, do I go back to his funeral? I, I hadn't seen him. I don't have a relationship. I didn't really care to be honest. And, and so I said, hmm, 
Yeah, I'm going to go back because it's one of those things I don't want to look back in life and say, I should have gone. What if I would? So I was like, okay, let's just go. So I went and, and here's what's interesting, man. I'm at this funeral and I thought there were going to be like six people there because my, my dad was shitty. So I didn't think anybody would show up. Oh my God. They had to open up additional room for the amount of people that showed up. And I was blown away. You saw all these old school pimps there. They were dressed in their purple suits, pink, everything. Well, obviously it was a black funeral. And so they had these, uh, you had two minutes to speak your piece. And all these people would go up to the microphone. My, my dad's nickname was Booby. And they would say, Booby taught me the game. Booby taught me how to dress. Booby taught me how to cut my money, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there just in amazement, like, my dad didn't teach me any of that shit. Where, where did you guys get this? And so finally, I got a little frustrated. And, and I went up to the microphone. I said, hey, I really appreciate every one of you sharing this. I had no clue my dad did any, any of this. I said, but I want to I wanna be straight with you all. I hadn't seen my dad or talked to him in 35 years. The only reason I came here today, I said, because when I was a kid, I remember Booby making me wait in the window for hours and never showing up. So the only reason I'm here for Booby is because be it heaven or be it hell, wherever Booby is right now, I didn't want him to wait for me like I waited on his ass. And I walked off, went over to the, uh, uh, the office, found out that no one could pay for his funeral. And I, I paid for his funeral to, to, to bury the man that, that I, I hadn't seen in 35 years. Wow. Wow. Uh, what was that like for you? To, oh, to stand there in a church or wherever it was held that was overspilling with people to say goodbye to a person who, for you, was clearly a shitty human being. You know, I, I'm two sides on that. One, the, the, the funeral itself, the person, the, the body that was laying in the casket, I didn't know that person no. because he, he had obviously aged. It didn't, he wasn't the man that I remember who drove no. around in the, the candy apple red Cadillac and the three piece suits and every, that wasn't him. No. So the, the moment itself was a bit disconnecting because I'm like, okay, that, that body is there, but that's not, that wasn't my dad. And, right. and so uh, it, it was, I don't know that I really have the words to put on it, but I knew that, okay, this is, I'm going to make peace with this after 35 years. And then I really, afterwards, I went into a mode of remembering all the things he ever taught me all the thing, all the positives that I actually learned from them. And, and I started to speak them out loud that things that I stuffed away for years that I would never give them credit for, you know, it's, it's my dad. And I would never tell anybody this No, my work ethic actually came from him. He, he said to me one time, me and a couple of my half brothers and sisters, he said, I don't care what you do in life, be the best at it. He said, whatever you do, if you're going to be a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper in the world. And that stuck with me. And so when I had my first job cleaning toilets, I made sure I had the cleanest toilets in the city. 
but it came by way of him. And I would never give him credit until after he passed away. And I was like, okay, I learned that from you. What else did you learn from him? Oh man, one of my favorites. Um, I remember he had me one weekend. He had me and, and, and a couple of my, my brothers and sisters. And man, it was like 1, 1.30 in the morning. And my dad came, came home. And we thought we were going to get in trouble because we were still awake. And my, my dad, man, I can still see this moment. He leaned on this bookshelf and he put his arm up there and he just stared at us. And, you know, we were nervous, you know, because my dad was volatile. We'd seen our dad beat shit out of women. We'd seen him drag women out of cars by their hair, leave them on the side of the road. I mean, we'd seen some shit from our dad. Sure. So when he's staring at us, not saying anything, we're thinking, oh, hell. Yep. Then all of a sudden he looks at us and he says, don't you ever be like me. Don't you ever end up like me. And for me as a kid, I remember thinking to myself, okay, the first things that came into my head was, okay, you're a pimp, you're a drug dealer, you're mean to women, you don't always pick me up. And so I started going through all the things of, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and that was my makeup of, okay, I can't do those things. And that was such just a... Um, it was just such a hell of a moment that I, I remember him saying, don't you ever be like me. Do you remember the last time you saw him before he died? Um, yeah, I, I, I remember right before I left Dayton, Ohio, my aunt, my little brother, it was my dad's sister, uh, uh, my, my little half-brother, and my dad, we all went to a Cincinnati Reds baseball game. And I was 15, and wow. I, rem I remember my dad wanting me to stay in Dayton. And the only reason I got out of Dayton is because my uncle took me to the airport. Uh, my mother had bought a, a ticket to get me the hell out of Dayton and reunite me with her in, in San Antonio, Texas. But my dad was literally not wanting me to go. And, and my uncle took me to the airport and got me the hell out of Dayton. And that that's so I, this I, your dad's brother, my dad's brother. Yeah. Got you out, got me out. What did your dad say to try and make you stay? Uh, why, why do you want to go to, go to Texas? Why don't you stay here? You know, I'm back now. I uh, give you, give you some backstory into this. My, my dad had taken off to England for, for over a year. Mm. Um, that we, okay. So, so we're in this house, me, my dad, the prostitute, uh, and three of my half brothers and sisters there, they were four, three, and two. And, mm. and my dad, comes home one day, it's, it's a Saturday, and he says, hey, I'm going to England for two weeks. I'm like, what the hell? Like, who, who does this? You know, I, I was 12 years old. And, and I'm like, okay, and he leaves. Wow. So then Sunday, the prostitute, by the way, is a horrible heroin addict. She says she's going to run up to the store and get a pack of cigarettes. Okay, she leaves. Sunday night, she doesn't come back. 
Monday night, she doesn't come back. I'm here with my 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 three half brothers and sisters. They're they're four, three, and two. And how old are you? I'm twelve. Twelve. And it's February, Dayton, Ohio. It's cold. It's winter. I'm supposed to be in school. Wednesday comes around and it hits me. Holy shit! We don't have any food. So I had to tell my four-year-old sister to babysit the three-year-old and the two-year-old so I could go down to the store and steal food. I remember walking to the store in, in, a, in a state of stress because I'm like, oh my God, if I get caught stealing this food, no one's gonna know that they're there, what's gonna happen. And so I get to the store, I steal some food, I come back. And the moment I walk in the door, I realize, oh shit, the two-year-old doesn't have any diapers. So I had to take my little brother up to the, the, the restroom. I sit him on the toilet. He's crying. I'm crying. And I look at him and I said to him, I go, hey, man, until something comes out, this is how it's going down. <laughs> and that's how I learned to potty train. And I'll fast forward with, with this. She was gone for three weeks. And we were in this house together for three weeks. Dove, man. I've lost a million dollars. I've made eight figures. I've scaled companies. I've wondered how we were going to make payroll. I have never felt the stress greater than every day. I wondered, would they disconnect the electricity? Would they turn off the water? Would, and, and no one knows we're here. I'm supposed to be in school. What's going to happen to us? I'd sleep with the lights on so I could wake up at night and make sure they were still on. Um, there is nothing I've ever faced in life that was more stressful than, than that. Nothing. I, it, no. there's, I, I don't know that there's ever going to be anything that will be more stressful uh, that I can't work through th than that. She, she showed up um, and this sent me on my, my juvenile stint here. Um, she showed up, beat the shit out of me. Uh, my ear was bleeding, uh, just kicked my ass. I ran away, got brought back, and the, and the second beating was worse than the first. A again, by the grace of God, one of my other dad's brothers took me to another girlfriend's house. I stayed with her for a week. That Friday, uh, she was an alcoholic. She started beating me. I got tired of getting beat at this point, man. I fought back. She called the police. I went to juvenile. Here's, here's the F. Oh, so you went to juvie for fighting back. I went to juvie because I, I, what was it? Um, aggravated assault uh, is what I was charged with as a 12 year old kid. And uh, she pressed charges. I went to juvenile prison. And I want to be real clear when I say this, it's juvenile prison. People say juvenile detention to try to make the shit sound nicer than what it is. Man, I got put in solitary confinement by these two big ass men. It was pitch black. I'm in there. No one knows where I am because you know what though? My mom was in Texas and she didn't know that I was back in Ohio. My dad had taken me. My dad was in England. No, only God knew, knew where that guy was, and, but no one knew I was in uh, juvenile prison and I was in solitary confinement. You want to talk about a mental mind, excuse my language, mind fuck. Sure. You're in this hole, pitch black, and no one knows you're there. 
and you're just wondering, like, what's going to happen to me? Um, How long were I, you in there? I, I was in the hole because that's what it was. I was in the hole for three straight days. I was in juvenile for three months, and I was in and out of juvenile three different times. Um, my dad finally made it back. Now I get, now I get back to your question. Um, my dad finally made it back. And then that's why he was wanting me to stay. But I was like, I I've been through so much shit. You weren't here. Like I, I was bitter. Like you left me, mm -hmm. you left me and you mm -hmm. left me with that prostitute. And oh, by the way, a lot of people don't know this. The prostitute that he left me with was the same one that used to sexually molest me when I was a kid. Right. And, and so um, when my uncle got me out of there, I remember him telling me, man, I, I remember him telling me this is going to be the best thing in the world for you. Man. What's crazy, Dove, is I, I left there the same suitcase that my mom left the orphanage with was the same suitcase that I was homeless with at one time at 13. It was the same suitcase that I left Dayton, Ohio with. And I still have that suitcase. I'll bet you do. I'll bet you do. Really want to thank you for your courage and sharing that with us, Javon. I really do. I think it's powerful and important for people to realize, <clears throat> you know, uh, in my work, I'm often saying to people, your past is leaking all over your present and is about to pollute your future. And we, we love to dismiss and say, those things are gone, but they're not. They're forming us and they continue to form us. And being willing to speak a truth that is unspoken allows us to pass the shame to where it belongs. We carry shame that's not ours. We carry pain that's not ours. And we need to give it back to where it belongs. And, you know, in what you've just shared is so powerful. I know it will be incredibly powerful for many people who are listening because it will give them permission. Thank you. And you know, the hardest part of that, the mind blowing part is when I went back to my dad's funeral, my three half brothers and sisters were there that the ones I got left, the little with, ones, yeah. the little ones. And the hurt that I still carry, I, I've tried to set it down, man. I, I, I may, you know, if it, if it was a, if it was two stacks of, of trash bags, I, I maybe I've put one down, mm -hmm. but when I got back to the funeral and they told me the shit that they went through after I left, yeah. they, they got split up and put into foster care. They used to come home and, and their mom would be passed out with the needle in her arm. They lived in an abandoned house and, and put their food in the snow to try to keep it fresh. 
when I heard the shit that they went through, the guilt that I had because I got out of Dayton and, and they didn't, oh man, because for, for whatever reason in my mind, I, I guess I felt somewhat responsible still. Um, and yeah, that, that was yeah, a it's hard called, It's called survivor's guilt. It's yeah. called survivor's guilt. I carried it myself. When going back and seeing my siblings and seeing the people um, I'd left behind and, you know, I got out, I was driven differently than they were. I understand that. But when I look at members of my family who have gone down a very dark path, it's like, I wish I could have done something. I have a brother that, you know, they speak about him very poorly. And I always say, I just remember the little boy who was. I remember this beautiful kid who was so alive and so beautiful and so smiley and and you know and I just remember him being that way you know and the path he went down was very dark but of course it was I understand he had choices just like I did that's the personal responsibility side yeah but damn that was a hard route I mean that was a hard road to get off and, and you said something very important and powerful is that there's always somebody trying to pull you back on. And I talk about that a lot in my work. If you are, if you are looking to go somewhere and people are not telling you to stay where you are, you can be pretty sure that you're on, that you're on the right path. And if they're trying to tell you to stay where you are and you're going somewhere else, you're on the right path because people want to keep you around Yep. them because it validates their shitty reality yep. i'm not staying there yeah. we gotta end this section this has been incredibly powerful thank you javon i mean beyond beyond your vulnerability the insights the wisdom the clarity thank you so much we're going to come back in in the next part of the show and i hope that you dear listener will stay curious and stay with us and I, I really want to let you know that you can find out more about the show uh, in the Facebook group, which is Curiosity Bites. But you can also find out more on DoveBaron.com. And, of course, we're going to make sure that at the beginning of the next part that you can find out where you can find out more about uh, Javon McCormick. And we will be back soon. So stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Stay curious.